Welcome to Near East PolicyCast. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. Mahmoud Abbas, president of the Palestinian Authority and leader of the Fatah Party, is in Washington, D.C. this week for only the second time since 2010. On May 3rd, he'll meet President Donald Trump at the White House, the first face-to-face meeting between the two men. How should the American president approach his Palestinian counterpart as the new U.S. administration begins to lay the groundwork for a new push to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? I would counsel the president to be both firm but gentle. Firm in the sense that we, Abbas needs to leave the meeting with a difficult, with a specific, with a meaningful ask. Something like the prisoner's issue, something of this sort. This is important in its own right. These are issues that have to be addressed. But it's also important in order to explore whether or not Abbas has the ability or the willingness to make difficult decisions. If he's unable to make these kinds of decisions, it's very hard to imagine him being able to make the kind of decisions that one would require in reaching a peace deal. This is the firm part. The gentle part, though, is we have to realize as Abbas comes here that he might not be able to deliver on some of these things today. So what we should offer instead is to engage him in a process through which we will work with him to reach these objectives. That was former Palestinian peace negotiator Khraith Alomari speaking on May 1st to a gathering of policymakers and journalists at the Institute's offices in Washington, D.C. Khraith was joined at the podium by leading Israeli journalist Ehud Yarhi and two veteran American scholars and peace negotiators, David Mikofsky and Ambassador Dennis Ross. We'll hear from all four experts as they preview Abbas's White House visit and the chances for Israeli-Palestinian progress in the Trump administration. After this. This is Kate Bauer, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. First, we'll hear from Khaith Alamari, a senior fellow at the Washington Institute and a former Palestinian Authority official who served as advisor to the negotiating team during the 1998-2001 through 2001 permanent status talks. So where is Abbas today politically? I would say he is in an almost paradoxical situation. He is both strong but also in a shaky, uh, volatile or a fragile uh, position. He's strong in the sense that only last summer um, he convened the conference for his Fatah uh, movement. He managed to get uh, elected as the leader again, managed to get his supporters elected to key positions in the uh, movement. And today he's in full control of all of the machinery of uh, the Fatah movement. Also, regionally speaking, diplomatically speaking, while last summer he was uh, in many ways being shunned and pressured by some regional actors, the renewed interest by President Trump in the peace process has uh, brought Abbas back again into the regional uh, limelight. We just saw before he came to Washington, he met with uh, President Sisi, with King Abdullah. Leaders who were unwilling to talk to him uh, a few months ago right now are dealing with him as a central figure. This gives him a feeling of strength, but this is also very fleeting and very shaky strength in the sense that, domestically speaking, as he consolidated uh, his control over Fatah, he did that at the expense of alienating some key constituencies uh, in Fatah. What we're seeing today, for example, there's a hunger strike by many Palestinian prisoners led by uh, Marwan Barghouti. Marwan Barghouti managed to get the highest votes in the Fatah conference, received no uh, positions, his supporters were not elected. And therefore, what we're seeing, 
Barghouti and others creating a show of force vis-a-vis -vis Abbas and reminding him that he has still opponents within the uh, Palestinian system. So his margin of maneuver is restricted despite his control over Fatah. And in regional terms, while some of the leaders uh, are willing to talk to him, this is not because they have seen any change in the substance of the peace process or, or any renewed confidence in Abbas per se, but because they understand that uh, since President Trump is focusing on this, they have to engage Abbas. If the American focus goes somewhere else, Abbas's significance also goes somewhere else. So this is the general context in which he is coming, which will dictate the dynamics of what he will try to achieve in the meeting on Wednesday. On Wednesday, he will come with two contradictory uh, dynamics. On the one hand, he would need to produce sustained engagement. He would need the meeting to produce sustained engagement with the United States so he can leverage that to maintain his relevance diplomatically. On the other hand, because of his weaknesses, because of his domestic pressures, he is afraid that he will get difficult asks, difficult uh, demands from the meeting that he will be difficult, that will be difficult for him politically to address. In particular, two things uh, stand out that he is worried about. The first, he is afraid that there will be a clear, strong ask for him to stop what uh, is called martyr funds or support that the PA pays to uh, uh, pr prisoners or to the families of uh, terrorists engaged in some uh, terrorist activities. This is something that has become very significant in the Washington conversation. It's something that is politically difficult for him to deliver, particularly in the midst of uh, an ongoing hunger strike. So this is one that he is afraid to be uh, tasked with. And the other one that he is afraid of is something that actually uh, President Trump mentioned in his press conference with Prime Minister Netanyahu. He's afraid of a peace process, of a process that has a regional dimension, not only a bilateral dimension. He's afraid of that because it will put him again under the pressure of Arab leaders with whom he has tense relations, and it will dilute the centrality of the Palestinian players in the peace process. Instead, he will try to deflect attention into different uh, uh, issues. He will try to build on the security successes that have been happening over the last years, and rightly so. He would like to capitalize on the interests of the Trump administration in economic development. He might be willing to even uh, offer abandoning some of the diplomatic internationalization efforts that he has been engaged in recently, going to the UN, etc. Particularly because these efforts have lost direction and have hit uh, a dead wall, uh, a dead end, and as such, uh, he feels that he can uh, do away with them. But most importantly, what he will try to do is to offer President Trump the resumption of a bilateral U.S.-Palestinian uh, peace talk solely under U.S. Uh, uh, auspices, i.e. without the uh, regional component. He has already uh, indicated that uh, in an interview he gave to a Japanese newspaper recently. He said he was willing to meet with Prime Minister Netanyahu under the auspices of President Trump. He will try to present these as a way of... Uh, deflecting from some of the more difficult tasks, particularly that Abbas himself, you know, his comfort zone is within managing a diplomatic negotiation process. He felt that he survived this under uh, Bush and under uh, Obama, and he thinks that he can maneuver it under Trump. What does this mean? And I will conclude with this. What does this mean for uh, the U.S. and what, how should the U.S. approach this? I would say in the meeting on Wednesday, I would counsel the president to be both firm but gentle. Firm in the sense that we, Abbas needs to leave the meeting with a difficult, with a specific, with a meaningful ask. 
something like the prisoners issue, something of this sort. This is important in its own right. These are issues that have to be addressed, but it's also important in order to explore whether or not Abbas has the ability or the willingness to make difficult decisions. If he's unable to make these kinds of decisions, it's very hard to imagine him being able to make the kind of decisions that one would require uh, in reaching a peace deal. By the way, this is what uh, the president, this is what the U.S. did with Israel. Uh, Netanyahu came here. He was uh, asked to do something politically difficult for him, something about settlements. And so something similar has to be done with Abbas. This is the firm part. The gentle part, though, is we have to realize, as Abbas comes here, that he might not be able to deliver on some of these things today. If we ask him right now to uh, stop these payment payments immediately, he probably will be unable to do that. So what we should offer instead is to engage him in a process through which we will work with him to reach these objectives through a defined timeline, through defined benchmarks. Again, similar to the dynamic that we have created with Israel, whereby the U.S. is now engaging Israel to figure out what's a slowdown on settlement. Looks like we need to do something similar with uh, Abbas. This kind of approach will create a dynamic whereby there is an ongoing engagement, a process of U.S.-Palestinian uh, uh, engagement, but not on terms dictated by uh, the PA, i.e. diplomatic uh, engagement, but rather on terms dictated by the U.S. meant to probe the Palestinian ability to uh, reach a deal. On Wednesday, if President Trump asks for too much and too uh, quick, Abbas might shut down and, we might end, and he might retreat to his, uh, decide to preserve his uh, domestic standing and nothing will come out of the meeting. On the other hand, if the president asks for too little and is willing to engage on a diplomatic process with no uh, preparation, we might end up with a very familiar story of a peace process, of a negotiation, where neither or one of the sides is uh, willing or able to reach a deal and we're just being strung along. The, ba the balance has to be reached between a meaningful ask and at the same time a process in which we work with the Palestinians to reach this uh, objective. That was Khaith al-Omari. Next, we'll hear from Ehud Yari, an award-winning journalist who is currently Middle East commentator for Israel's Channel 2 television. He is the Institute's Lafer International Fellow. Good afternoon. Not for the same time I agree with uh, much that my colleague uh, Reis was uh, telling you, uh, but I see Abbas differently. I see Abbas becoming moodier than ever, capable of temperamental uh, outbursts more often than before, becoming extremely suspicious of everybody around him, removing people who were historically, traditionally very close to him. When he felt, for example, lately, that the chief of his uh, security, who's also in many ways, his top diplomat, uh, General Majid Farage, is becoming or is perceived to be too strong. He immediately sort of spanked him uh, in public. He's very, very uh, uh, busy with maintaining the right balance between potential contenders for succession People who are close to him will tell you that he was never easy to live with, to work with, more so now. So this is the, the man who's coming to see the president. That's his mood. That's his frame of mind. Now, 
Number one, in spite of this uh, sudden spate of uh, optimism that the Trump administration can do it, and even the new uh, PLO uh, representative in uh, Washington, Hossam Zumlot, believes that it's uh, possible. Well, I will argue that no major breakthrough is available now. No lack of effort or shortage of time prevented the deal so far over the many years since uh, Oslo. Nothing has changed in that. I'll not, not go into that. I'll just remind you that uh, once somebody involved, even recently, in the uh, uh, track two negotiations over peace, wrote once the article, a famous article, in which he says, thanks, but no thanks, but no thanks to a Palestinian state. The closest people to Abbas will tell you that you offer him 67 lines. Is Jerusalem as a capital? The answer is no. Or rather, the answer is, I'll come back, I'll get back to you, Mr. President, as he said to President Obama. He is not the man who's going to sign a deal giving up on the return of many, many refugees. It's not him. And everybody around him knows it and will tell you privately that this is the case. Second, politically, I think that uh, we're not talking uh, uh, Israel today, but I don't think Bibi has the numbers to go for a substantial uh, deal. And I'm not going to play now with the arithmetics, certainly not with the coalition he has. And I think Abbas not only doesn't have the will to go long distance, but he doesn't have the popular support. He is dramatically losing control of segments and sectors of the West Bank geography and demography. He doesn't control the refugee camps and they are important. And a myriad, an array of Tanzim, Fatah Kaders, armed groups, not unified as they were under Arafat and Marwan Barghouti, is challenging and is going to challenge the predominance of the official security forces of the Palestinian Authority. My count, they have roughly the same number of guns by now. And the most important player uh, on them and amongst the Tanzim is uh, a gentleman by the name of Mahmoud Al-Alul, who was given the, by uh, Abbas now the number two position in Fatah in order to balance Jibrin Rajoub's number two position in the PLO. So the main objective of uh, Abu Mazen, of Abbas coming to Washington, in my humble opinion, is to control potential damage. That's the main mission. This administration talks differently. Jason Greenblatt doesn't talk to him like Martin Indyk did. It's not the same language. It's not the same requirements. And he hears the voices. He wants to cut the potential damage. And he understands that in order to do that, uh, he will need to perform the necessary 
diplomatic acrobatics. And Ray pointed correctly to the fact that this is his zone of comfort. He knows to handle negotiations. He handled many negotiations, and he managed to get out of it. Yes, he will be uh, willing to reduce, maybe even to switch from waging international lawfare against Israel to pressure on Hamas. David asked me to say uh, something on Hamas, and I will do that right away. I think many have ignored a very important speech last year delivered by Khaled Mashal, the outgoing chairman of the wrongly called political bureau, rightly called the executive committee of uh, Hamas in Qatar. He basically said, we have, made a ma we have committed a major mistake by insisting to maintain and maintaining exclusive Hamas control in the Gaza Strip. That was a mistake, says Marshall. I believe, in spite of all the talk, and I've read uh, much of what was published uh, about the new leader of Hamas, uh, Yahya Sanwar. I happen to know him quite uh, well, meeting him many times when he was in Israeli uh, jail. I believe what Hamas wants to, has in mind now, Yahya Sanwar, is to become a Hezbollah in the Gaza Strip. No governance. They have no interest in governance, and they are being pressured now, as I'm sure most of you know, by Hamas cutting the budget for um, uh, the electric uh, fuel for the electricity. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Cutting the uh, funding for electricity, reducing salaries, etc. And there is probably more to come. So far, there is something, some option there. So far, Abbas has proven to have very weak knees when it comes to showing the flag in Gaza. He could have visited there. He could have Palestinian security at the uh, border termin terminals, etc. I don't know that it's changing. And as an Israeli, I'm saying Israel will have to think very uh, seriously whether it's indeed our interest. But I believe <coughs> that there is a possibility emerging now for a sort of cohabitation, cohabitation in uh, Gaza if it is encouraged. I don't know that this is where the United States want to go. I'll end, I'll end by these two notes. One is about the succession. There will no be, not be, I believe, there will not be a successor to Abbas. There will be a coalition, a triumvirate, or maybe four, who will share the different <coughs> positions. One will be Secretary General of the PLO, and one will be Secretary General of the Central Committee of Fatah, and the other will be Prime Minister of the PA, etc. It's very important, I think, by now, to have the discussions encompass these people too, whether Abbas really likes it or not. And there are ways uh, to do that. And finally, this point. I think for many years now, embarking upon a final status effort is going once again to back, backfire. It will, will prove elusive. It's not there. It's simply not there. I hope it will be someday, but it's not there now. And therefore, the question, the big question is whether the Trump administration, whoever will be directly involved 
in the process. And yes, I think that Abbas will indeed say to the president, I'm willing to enter a new phase of uh, negotiations, whether they will come to the table with a fallback, a fallback which can only be some formula, some version of an interim, a comprehensive, generous interim, but interim, encompassing most of the territory of the West Bank, but not all of it. That would be a major achievement. That was Ehud Yari. Next, we'll hear from David Makovsky. In 2013 through 2014, he worked for the Office of the Secretary of State as a senior advisor to the U.S. Special Envoy for Israeli-Palestinian Negotiations. David is a Ziegler Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute and director of the Project on the Middle East Peace Process. I'm trying to think about, uh, you know, the phrase, how is this night different from all other nights? How is this visit different from all other visits? And in, in a strange way, it might be something actually working for Abbas as I try to think of what, what's working for him and what are the challenges he faces. And it's, I think it's a commonality you've heard so far in this panel is one thing working for him is incredibly low expectations. And that could work for him. It's very radically different, uh, the situation, the context now than when it was the last time he was here. Um, I was in the government then, and uh, there was some hope, I must say not among all of us, uh, that he would be receptive to President Obama's offer. There was a context, there was a very active negotiation track that was going on under the Obama administration in, on March 17, 2014, when Abbas was here last. Nobody believes that today. And uh, as you've also heard from our previous speakers, uh, there's a sense that the Palestinians are on a cusp of succession, even though it's very murky, and it will probably be collective, not uh, one person emerging so quickly. But there's no context for talks for a grand deal. And uh, the, the leadership has not, on both sides, Israeli and Palestinian, I don't think the Venn diagram overlaps sufficiently that there's enough convergence between the parties. And I think Washington has absorbed this. Uh, and it's kind of baked into the cake in terms of lower expectations. Ironically, the one person who doesn't talk like that is the President of the United States. <laughs> and the President of the United States still talks about the deal the ultimate deal. So the person who wrote The Art of the Deal wants to write the sequel. Now, does he genuinely believe? Or after 100 days of, of Trump, are we learning that there's a curve that Trump's whole approach is stake out an extreme position and work back from that? It could be 15% corporate taxes. It could be on a range of issues. And it might be, I'm going to do the deal. And maybe he believes unless he gets people excited about the deal, the ultimate deal, then they won't even get to do less than the deal. So whether it's tactical with this president or not, it's, it's hard to know. But I, I think it's fair to say he doesn't have a political base that is urging him, this is at the top of your priority list. And yet he wants to do it. But he's coming, and no, but there's no expectations. And I think for Abbas, this is, when I talk, when I list on the ledger, what are the opportunities for him? I don't think, A, low, low expectations. I think it helps him. Second, I think the fact he's never met Trump, this is an introductory meeting. This is not a, a deliverables meeting. 
I mean, Netanyahu also had his meeting early on with Trump. You know, I think Bibi likes the idea, come early before there's a policy review. If there's no policy review, there's not yet policy recommendations. In this case, there's not really a staff either. So, I mean, the, the point is that coming early, and this is still fairly early on in the administration, I think for um, Abbas, low expectations, and here's your one chance to, you know, they say you have one chance to make a first impression that way. So I, I think that cuts for him. I think uh, another thing that cuts for him is, is he's heard enough buzz coming out of Washington and the Greenblatt visit about more economic uh, developments that could emerge. Um, you know, there's been press reports that the only people whose foreign aid isn't going to be cut and might even go up a little bit are, are the Palestinians, even though they have been cut. I mean, they used to get over $200 million in direct budgetary assistance that was basically cut out when Fayyad left office. I can go through the other numbers with you, AID numbers, et cetera. Another thing cutting for Abbas is I think he feels that that the, the fervor to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem has cooled in the administration, that there's no signs of preparations that the administration is going to. Um, uh, come June 1st will be the first time this president will, uh, would be forced, is he going to sign a waiver uh, to move the embassy under U.S. law every six months? They need to sign under national security purposes. Obama signed December 1st. June 1st is the date. Now, it turns out that June 1st is five days before the 50th anniversary of the 1967 war that uh, where Israel reunited Jerusalem. So could Trump be going to Israel on May 23rd, 24th, which just coincidentally is the 50th anniversary on the Hebrew calendar, people haven't noted this yet, of the 67 war? And it's called Yom Yerushalayim, Jerusalem Day. And, uh, you know, could that be a time? But right now the fever has cooled. So could Trump be going in his view? Well, I won't move the embassy, but I'll make a trip. I'll, I'll give a speech. I'll do something. So I think if I had to do a ledger, cutting for Abbas is that, you know, and here maybe the Arab states have, have helped him out a little bit. Um, and maybe he's also, as Ehud uh, and, and, and Raitz suggest, maybe he's even coming to signal to Trump. I'm starting to get tougher on Hamas. I'm not paying electricity bills for them. I'm cutting uh, the pensioners of, of, of the Palestinian security forces. I used to, a lot of my budget would go to the Gaza. I'm not doing that anymore. And look, a third, only a third of the Fatah prisoners are in this hunger strike. Two-thirds of Fatah are not in it. I don't know if I want to strengthen Marwan Barghouti in jail. You know, he's a rival to him. So he might be signaling certain things. But the commonality is, I think, is it's all about short of a deal. It's not about a grand deal. Um, and could he be saying, as, that, as, as was noted earlier about that Japanese interview, about I'm willing to meet Netanyahu under Trump's auspices, I'm willing to jettison all my preconditions that I've had for the last seven years to meet Netanyahu. I haven't met him since 2010. They've had a few phone conversations, but not much more. So, um, so basically, um, you know, could he be saying, look, I, you're going to be out in Israel. You could preside over the first meeting in seven years. But to me, it gets to the question, so what? What, what is the context? What does it lead to? Where is it going? And this gets to the challenges for Abbas, which is if there's low expectations of a grand deal and that the administration doesn't believe that Abbas or Netanyahu are capable of the home run, as I like to call it. Uh, what, what's the single 
What is the thing that gives us a direction, if not yet a destination? For Netanyahu, I think it, it's clear. Uh, Dennis and, and I wrote a transition paper about, uh, you know, the idea of differentiation among settlements and, you know, making clear you're not going to build uh, beyond the security barrier. Seventy-six to eighty-five percent of Israelis who live in that area live within the security barrier. Uh, and and a, a few people, it's still not a relevant number, it's still 90,000 people live in, in the remainder of the 92% of the West Bank, but the large majority live inside. So Netanyahu took a step, I would say a half a step, a quarter step, but he took some step. So I think the administration is going to say is, where's your step? What are you doing? We're done. This isn't the Obama years anymore. We're not just putting the onus on Israel to say you've got to act on settlements. Yes, they have to act, but you have to act too. And I think a single isn't easy for him because uh, he's used to eight years of the other way. And um, this would be a shift. Uh, is he capable of, of, of withholding money from these martyrs' foundations uh, to families of stabbers, suicide bombers, or where the prisoners who commit violence get triple the salary of everybody else? Is he capable of that? Uh, if he is, I, my bet is that... Uh, President Trump will be able to hold off Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, who would like to do a Taylor Force Act, and in the name of an American who was a West Point graduate and an officer who was stabbed in Jaffa during uh, Vice President Biden's visit. And he'll say, look, I won't cut them off completely like Graham wants to do, but you got to give me something. If you give me something, I can hold off Lindsey Graham. If you don't, you're on your own. Um, but there are things he could also do, I think, Trump, that could help Israel. Um, I mean, that could help Abbas. And this is something that I don't see in the conversation in Washington that much, and maybe you'll say uh, too hard to do, but I, I don't know if it is. The Gulf states really want to get Trump engaged on the Iran issue, as we all know. Um, and yet, a lot of Abbas's problems are not just with Israel, but with the Gulf states. So you have this very unusual situation that the people that should be helping the PA are countries like the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia. They kind of see themselves in the same pragmatic Sunni camp. And yet, they've got their own squabbles with him uh, over Mohammed Dahlan. It's gone on forever uh, with the crown prince of the Emirates. Uh, as they, In Washington, everyone has to have an acronym, MBZ, you know, Mohammed, Mohammed bin Zayed. What if Trump would say, listen, you start delivering for me on some of these singles, I'm going to deliver for you. I'm going to call Mohammed bin Zayed, and I'm going to try to get them to start funding you again and put aside this Dahlan. They might not ever forget it, but maybe that it will minimize it. And maybe the same with the Saudis, too, which have cut their contribution to the Palestinians. And I'll talk to Sisi. Yes, as Wraith alluded to, Abbas being invited to Washington made him suddenly relevant regionally. Uh, suddenly Sisi said, oh, why don't you come visit in Cairo? Uh, Abdullah met him in Jordan. So he knows a ticket to Washington isn't just a ticket to Washington. It's a ticket to other uh, Gulf leaders and uh, Arab Sunni leaders. And this, I think, would, would be very helpful to Abbas. And I think it would be helpful to the cause of succession to ease Gulf-Palestinian uh, relations. Um, and I think another piece here for him would be to say, um, we got to work out a system that you see any Sunni-Israeli cooperation is coming at your expense because the Palestinians think we got the, the ultimate trump card, excuse the, excuse the pun. 
the trump card being that uh you know that they the israelis won't have any entree to the sunnis without us and i think they're half right uh the sunnis are not going above the table with the israelis in a meaningful way there's you know i could point to a visit of somebody or somebody a lower level but on a meaningful way but they're not blocking the sunnis and israelis working together under the table Tamir Pardo, the former head of the Mossad, has reported in the Israeli press of having told Netanyahu, him and his predecessor, Mayor Dagan, Israel's the mistress of the Middle East. Everyone wants to be with us, just not in public. And so uh, the question is, could there be some more modus vivendi to avoid this zero-sum approach that, that the Palestinians don't have to worry, oh, they're gonna, there's going to be a, an embassy in Riyadh. I think they know there's not going to be an Israeli embassy in Riyadh or Abu Dhabi. Uh, but on the other hand, there are going to be things they're going to do together. There's got to be a synchronizing of expectations in that Sunni-Israel-Palestinian triangle that I think uh, brings things more into some sort of realistic alignment than there is today, where the Palestinians are against everything and are convinced that the Israelis are making these inroads, and, and yet the Israelis really know that there will not be a Riyadh-first uh, peace. So... If the beginning of the Trump period, just to summarize, is um, it should be a time of realism, of, of, of realigning expectations by everybody, by Trump, by, by the Palestinians and the Israelis, and what is possible. Because short of the grand deal, short of the home run, there are some singles here. And I think everyone would be better off by trying to advance the runner. That was David Mikofsky. Next, we'll hear from Ambassador Dennis Ross, who is Counselor and William Davidson Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute. Ambassador Ross served as a Senior Advisor and Special Envoy on various Middle East issues, including Arab-Israeli and Israeli-Palestinian negotiations in the George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama administrations. So, you know, David loves to use baseball metaphors, um, if you hadn't noticed that. <laughs> Home runs, singles. So I'm batting cleanup, Okay. <laughs> Now, when you bat cleanup, it means that everybody has said everything in advance of what you were going to say, and so you decide, all right, so I'll have to rethink what I was going to say. So I've decided to rethink what I was going to say. First, I'm going to start off with something that will shock you. There's no big deal here, all right? The, whether you call it the ultimate deal or the big deal, to put this in perspective, I've been working on this issue for 30 years, and I, would, I can safely say we are at a low ebb between Israelis and Palestinians today. Not a low ebb in terms of level of violence, that's not the case, thankfully, but a low ebb in terms of complete disbelief uh, on both sides. I don't know that we have ever been as uh, widely separated psychologically as we are today. The combination of the psychological gap and the practical gaps on the issues and the political gaps make it impossible to go from where we are to producing the ultimate deal. Uh, the, the question becomes, you know, what does one do in light of that? If we know anything about the Middle East, the one thing we know is whenever there's a vacuum, the worst forces fill it. We've seen it in Iraq, where basically we changed the regime but didn't really have a plan for what came next, <clears throat> and the worst forces filled it. We've seen it in Syria, where our fear of recreating an Iraq led us to a strategy of avoidance, which helped to contribute to a vacuum, and the worst forces filled it. We've seen it in terms of the effort on uh, diplomacy with the Israelis and the Palestinians. 
where the basic approach, unfortunately, in the year 2014 was basically all or nothing. We were going to solve the conflict in nine months, and if we didn't, basically we did nothing, and it created a vacuum where the worst forces have filled it, uh, or at least psychologically where the gap between the two sides has become uh, much more severe, much wider than it's been before. So this is the setting, this is the context in which Mahmoud Abbas comes to Washington. Now, the president, whether it's because David suggests because the way he gets at the ultimate deal or the art of the deal is by coming out with very expansive statements to begin with, and that sort of shapes everybody's approach to how they should deal with him, or it's because he genuinely believes that there is an ultimate deal that can be there. And as he said this past week, there's no reason uh, why there shouldn't be an agreement. Uh, well, he may soon find out in his meetings with Mahmoud Abbas that there are some reasons why there may not be an agreement. But I do think that his approach to the meetings with Abbas needs to be, in the first instance, to demonstrate the difference from Obama. Uh, now, that comes naturally to him. I mean, basically, everything the administration does is to highlight the differences with their predecessor. By the way, it doesn't make it unusual. Almost every administration, almost every president, when they come in, they want to show how different they were from the predecessors. Believe me, having been in five administrations, I can tell you I've seen this repeatedly. So it's not unique to this administration, but in this particular case, it's important. Why do I say that? Well, you know, one of the interviews that Abbas gave at one point that uh, always stood out with me was when he gave this interview, and with pride he said, I've said no to Obama 12 times. And this was kind of an emblem for him. This is how I stand up to the United States. The one thing that can't be the result of this meeting is that Abbas leaves and feels it's okay to say no to Trump. He needs to understand when you say no to Trump, you pay a price when you say no to Trump. Trump needs to establish he's different. He's different in all sorts of ways. One thing he should be clear on is what he says he will do, he will do. He will deliver on what he says. Now, it also means when you say no to him, you're going to pay a price. That should be an objective that he has uh, for this meeting. Now, does he have leverage? Yes, he has leverage with Abbas. And you heard it. You heard it actually from, from Wraith and from David uh, and to some extent from Ehud. The leverage comes from the reality that at this point, Abbas has to show he's relevant. Uh, it isn't an accident, as both Wraith and David said, about suddenly Sisi and Abdullah deciding that they wanted to see him. It was because President Trump, by inviting him here to Washington, demonstrated he was relevant. But President Trump can also determine whether he continues to be relevant. You, know, you look at the setting within the Palestinian Authority right now. You look at the polling. He is profoundly unpopular. He, Abbas, is profoundly unpopular. The PA is perceived by 80% of the Palestinians of the West Bank is being corrupt. Yes, he has carried off a general conference. He has cemented his control. But the readiness to challenge him, you see very clearly with what Wanbar Barghouti is doing with the, uh, with the prisoner's strike, the hunger strike. So he needs to show that he is relevant. He needs to show he's relevant both for his own purposes in, in front of Palestinians, but also within the region itself. And it is true, here again, that there is a kind of reverse linkage going on. You know, the linkage concept historically was 
You really couldn't solve anything in the Middle East unless you solved the Palestinian problem. You couldn't change the American position uh, in the region uh, unless you could solve the Palestinian problem. You couldn't create any connections for the Israelis with the Arabs unless you solved the Palestinian problem. Well, there are relations with the Israelis below the radar screen with the Arabs because they have a, a common set of needs, a common set of threats. But the, where the reverse linkage comes in, ironically, is that the leading uh, Sunni states, and especially the, the leading states in the Arabian Peninsula, want the U.S. to be in the region. And they're not entirely certain, even though they see a difference in terms of rhetoric, they've seen the strike in Syria, they see some indications this administration is different from Obama, but they're not entirely convinced that between the increasing production of oil through shale here and the idea that maybe after Raqqa and after Mosul, ISIS is gone, maybe this administration will decide that they're going to withdraw. They want us in the region. Now, the irony is they perceive President Trump being genuinely interested in the Israeli-Palestinian issue. And to the extent to which they, come, they become convinced that the way to keep him in the region is by showing they'll do something on the Israeli-Palestinian issue, the irony is they may be using the Palestinian issue to keep him in the region. But that's also an interesting form of leverage for him. He can ask things of them, but he can also use that with the Palestinians. So how does he approach the meeting with Abbas? Well, the first thing is, as Raith was saying, he has to ask him something. Now, Raith came up with um, the, and I've known Raith for how long? Um, 17 years. I met him first, actually, I think at Camp David, right? Or was it at Bowling? Just before. Bowling? At Bowling. Just before, yeah, yeah, Bowling Air Force Base, um, which just shows that negotiators have ways of building relationships. Race approach was the natural negotiator's approach, which was to say he has to ask. It has to be clear, but it also has to be gentle. He has to be hard, but he also has to be gentle. Hard because Abu Mazen has to understand he can't leave here without having responded, or at least making it clear he will respond to what the president is asking, but gentle in the sense that he needs to understand the real context in which Abu Mazen is operating, and he needs to give him the space and the time to be able to respond to the ass. The ass have to be real, but there also has to be a timeline, so there doesn't have to be an immediacy, immediacy of response. There just has to be the certainty of response. So while Abu Mazen will try to get away with, I'm prepared to resume negotiations, and maybe even suggest, look, when you come, you can, you can preside over the meeting, that's nice, but it's purely symbolic. Precisely because of the gaps that I was describing at the beginning, if you bring the two leaders together, I can tell you it's a one-off. It doesn't lead anywhere. It doesn't do anything to change the way they see each other. None of the negotiations, that kind of a meeting won't be prepared in terms of producing a set of understandings that lead somewhere. The one thing that the diplomacy now has to do, given how wide the gaps are, given the depth of this, the disbelief, if you want the two publics to take a second look, not to suddenly believe, because when you lose belief, it's like losing faith. When you lose faith, this is not a light switch where you flip it and suddenly everything's okay. You have to give the publics on each side a reason to take a second look. The only reason they take a second look is if you can come and you can show, you know what, something is different this time. 
Oslo began in September of 1993, at least publicly. So here we are in 2017. If you want either the Israelis or the Palestinians to believe that diplomacy can lead anywhere, you have to show that it's beginning to do something differently. Something is changing, and something is changing on the ground. Not internationalizing the conflict, fine, but it's not changing anything. Having a one-off meeting doesn't change anything. So the ass have to be related to sending signals that each side's public will look at and say, gee, maybe something is different this time. Now, the ass that, I mean, I would have two ass. Wraith, you raised one. The, the one on the Martyrs Foundation. Uh, it is very hard for him because this is part of the Palestinian narrative now, the whole concept of resistance, the whole notion of struggle. Uh, this has become, in a sense, part of their identity. But the fact is, every time you reward somebody for killing an Israeli, you're basically saying it's okay to kill Israelis and the idea of coexistence is really not legitimate. That has to end. It has to be clear. that, And this president has to say, if you're telling me you're serious about peace and you want me to play a major, major role and I'm prepared to do that, then you have to prove to me that you're serious about peace. And the proof is that, in fact, you don't continue to legitimize the idea of killing Israelis. That has to stop. Now, race notion is, okay, I'll work out with you a way to do it so you don't have to do it tomorrow, but you have to do it. For me, there would be another ask as well. Uh, these are two national movements competing for the same space. That's the essence of this conflict. Two national movements, two national identities. One of the reasons two states for two peoples is the only real answer is because you're not going to get these two separate national identities coexisting in one state. That's a prescription for an enduring conflict. It's not a prescription for trying to end it. So I'm not saying at this point Abu Mazen has to sign up to the idea of a Jewish state. I am saying he has to acknowledge at some point that there's two national movements competing for the same space. There are two national identities. Uh, these two national identities require two states for two peoples. That is something he can say. And it is something, again, the timing of it is less important than the reality of doing it. He will resist these things, but this is where the president says to him, I, I'm going to ask hard things of Netanyahu just as I'm going to ask hard things of you. Uh, what I've done so far with Netanyahu, that's not the sum total of what I'm going to be asking of him. Just as I'm asking you to demonstrate and send a signal to the Israelis, I'm going to ask him to send a signal to the Palestinians, meaning that, in fact, his settlement policies are consistent with a two-state outcome. The current limitation doesn't meet that threshold. Building only in the blocks would. Now, is that something that this Israeli government can do? It's going to be very hard for them to do it. But that, again, gets back to the idea the president is saying, if I'm going to go for trying to transform things, I'm going to do it on the basis of each side having to take hard steps. These hard steps won't produce the big deal. But what the hard steps can do is break the stalemate and restore a sense of possibility. What exists today in, in the region and what exists between Israelis and Palestinians today is a sense that there is no possibility. And peacemaking can't work in a context where there's no sense of possibility. Break the stalemate, restore a sense of possibility, that might actually be a double, David, not a single. The point is that the conditions to create a permanent status agreement 
don't exist today. Ehud talked about a long-term interim agreement. One thing about Ehud is he has consistently viewed that for a very long time. Uh, and you know, the question becomes, even if you want to do a long-term interim agreement, you've got to break the stalemate first. You can't do a long-term interim agreement right now. My sense would be you want to go for the ultimate deal. Well, the conditions don't exist for it today. If you want to get to the ultimate deal, you better change the conditions and make what isn't thinkable today thinkable tomorrow. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.